From the World Economic Forum, I'm Beatrice Di Caro, and this is the Book Club Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by author and recent Booker Prize winner, Shehan Karunatilaka, to discuss his award-winning book, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. The book tells the story of a Sri Lankan war photographer who realizes he's in a processing center for souls in the afterlife and sets out to solve his own murder, which involves leading his friends to a box of incriminating photos under a bed. It's only the author's second novel following his debut Chinaman in 2011, for which he won the Commonwealth Prize. He's also written children's books, rock songs and screenplays. Shehan was born in Sri Lanka, grew up in Colombo, studied in New Zealand, and he's lived and worked in Singapore, Amsterdam and London. My colleague Kate Whiting joined me to interview Shehan and we started by asking him what Miley's story is all about. It's complicated, is the short answer, but it's at its heart it's a murder mystery about a dead war photographer trying to find out solving his own murder. But it's set during 1989, during a time where Sri Lanka was fighting three wars at the same time. It's also a political thriller in that this war photographer has got photographs under his bed of the atrocities of the Sri Lankan tragedies and that yeah, this is going. He's going to expose this, so that's that's another motivation. But also, it's an imagining of the afterlife. There's a love triangle at at the center of it. Uh, there's a lot of ghosts and ghostly philosophizing and a few jokes. So many moving parts. But I think, uh, yeah, in a sentence, it's it's about a dead war photographer trying to given seven moons to make peace with with his life. I've had the pleasure of reading it, and I studied photojournalism myself, so. The oh, whole oh. war photography aspect of it really, really called to me. Go to any war zones? I did not. That was one of the career paths I wanted to go with. But at the forum, doing a social media and I work with authors. So yeah, no one's shooting at you. Yeah, I, exactly. I, fair enough. <laughs> so it's, it's still very creative, but in a very different yeah. way. What, yeah. what motivated you to write the book? Well, one was my my first book, Chinaman, The Legend of Pradeep Matthew, was about cricket and a drunk sports journalist. And I was a bit tired of uh, talking about cricket and because I'm not an expert and there's plenty of cricket experts, especially in our part of the world. And so I want to write something very different for the second one. And I was interested in doing a ghost story, but not a traditional one, mainly because I started thinking about this 2010, 2011 right after the the end of the war in 2009, Sri Lanka's 30-year war. And it just seemed like instead of looking at the lessons that could be learned from the, the tragedies, there was a lot of laying of blame, arguing and talking about the civilians that died in the final phase of the war and just arguing about whose fault it was. So I thought, what if the dead could speak? What if the victims of Sri Lanka's many wars could speak? Uh, what would they have to say about Sri Lanka and about how it treated them? And that was really what motivated me to write this. So sadly, going back over Sri Lanka's history in my lifetime, there were many tragedies to to choose from, many unsolved murders and ghost stories that I could pick. And I, I, I chose 1989 because I remember that as a teenager being quite, it was, you know, you had a civil war between the Tamil separatists, the LTT, and, and the Sri Lankan army. And then you had a Marxist insurrection down south, um, and you had government debt squads sort of disappearing young radicals, and you also had the Indian peacekeeping force 
with boots on the ground and many you know secret service arms dealers foreign interests running around if if i was writing a thriller this would be too many plots like if i was writing fiction i would say let's take out a few of this but this is what the case was and all i remember as a teenager i mean i was insulated in colombo but i do remember dead bodies on the sides of the road and no one knew who why they died or who killed them because there were so many different explanations so 89 seems like ancient history even though it's 30 40 years ago and so that's why that's what motivated me and i was fascinated by this time because i lived through it but as a teenager in colombo sheltered away from it so i didn't really have a comprehension of it but i interviewed people who were who were in parts of the country where it was less safe and they had to bear the brunt of the wars being fought and and of course researched it it was well documented and also i felt it was far enough back in the past that it wasn't going to get me into trouble because m- many of the main antagonists were no longer with us so they'd all been assassinated or killed in some act of violence so so that that was really the motivation uh, but then once i got into it and the character mali almeida emerged yeah it took on different levels and became a bit more of a spiritual tale as well as a political one of course <laughs> And the aspect of of death is one that we wanted to ask you about, and I know Kay will come back to that in a bit. But first of all, congratulations on the Booker Prize. Uh, Thank you very much. What was that like, winning the Booker Prize? What has the global reaction been to the book? Yes, so you go into these things knowing the odds, kind of like Mali Almeida, though I'm not a gambler, but you go in there knowing (laughs) it's a one in six chance. And you know, the long list, you know, any book could, you, you know, at that level, you can't second guess this, even though people try and bet on it. So you go in with that mindset and you're, come on, you'd be delighted with the book, a short list, a uh, novel coming out of Colombo. I was, so you go in with that Zen attitude and then your name gets called and then that's when the terror begins, right? So you do it. But, I mean, luckily I had a few notes jotted down in my pocket. You don't want to wing it in this situation in front after a few glasses of wine in, with the cameras on you. So, so I managed to give my speech and all, all that. And it was, yeah, it's died. It's, it's a lot more manageable now, but the, the aftermath of it was of course your phones going ping, ping all through the night and just a lot of press, a lot of interview. And so there was a lot of activity for the next 48 hours. So, and yeah, the reaction, I've been following bits on Twitter and Facebook and all the messages. It's, yeah, it's been mainly positive and I just don't know how I'm going to reply to all of these. I think it's going to take me as long as it took to write the novel to to do that. But yeah, it's like, it, look, it's only, it's it's over seven moons, but it's, you know, it's less than two weeks since since the win. So obviously I know this is going to change change my career and I didn't even know I had a career after one book I had a day job and and so on so now yeah it'll creep up on me over the next few weeks and especially when I go back to Sri Lanka eventually it's wonderful and completely unexpected considered pretty surreal but it's uh, it's been yeah I've been quite grateful for it so you are what PKYA, the journalist, would describe as a global soul. I believe that you have studied in New Zealand and lived in London, Amsterdam and Singapore. What do you think those global perspectives bring to your writing? So I grew up in Sri Lanka, but I, yeah, actually, well, I spent my childhood in Birmingham, Wordsley. I went and visited there on, on the weekend. But yeah, I mean, I grew up in Sri Lanka, then I studied in New Zealand and yeah, lived in Singapore and London. I've tried to write about those places um, throughout, even in my 20s, and I, I haven't felt permission or, and also it's all well-trodden ground if I write about London, write about Amsterdam, and, and I've never felt the 
And I've always started writing these books when I was away. I think Chinaman I was writing when I was in London. This one I started when I was in Singapore. And that sort of brings me back. So I don't know what the glow. I, I think there's perhaps a Kiwi sense of humor there. And But I do notice this thing that, yeah, when I'm away, I tend to focus more on Sri Lanka. And it sort of drags me back because I don't feel I'm able to write when I was in Singapore. I do feel that, you know, Sri Lankan writing in insider versus outsider writing. I think for a lot of time when I was growing up, it, a lot of the writing was outsiders or even expat writers coming in and observing it. And now we're reading a lot more of people who are based there and, and, and writing about it. So yeah, I think Sri Lanka is a constant source of stories. So I think I'll always keep returning there. It's been more than a decade since your debut, Chinaman, that you mentioned. And I wonder what the journey was of getting this book to publication. So in those intervening years, we've had a pandemic and, and you've had children. Can you talk us through that journey to the second novel? Yeah, so I think all the writers I've spoken to say the pandemic was great for writing. I mean, it was traumatic time for the world, but I think a lot of us were quite productive. But I mean, that I'm getting to the end. That's the final stage. Before, yeah, so like I said, this was before children, but I was working in Singapore in a corporate job. But watching this debate, it was the battle of the documentaries online, people arguing over, not over the people who died. Eventually, we figured... 40,000, I think, is the settled on figure for that final phase of the war. But just arguing, yeah, whose fault it was. And I saw, I was observing this, but I was working full time and I didn't have time to really sit down with it. It only happened when I returned to Sri Lanka after the birth of our children. And it went through many false, I, perhaps I'll blame my children, I always do. Having a the one-year-old and three-year-old, yeah, trying to think up ghostly political stories during that time was challenging. So it went through many many drafts and phases and ideas. I think the early version was a slasher horror of a of a bus going around the tsunami ravaged coast. So this was set in 20, 2004. Yeah, it, it didn't quite pan out. But the only thing that remained from that was the ghost on the bus, which was a ghost called Mali Almeida. So I used to travel to Singapore, do some freelance, come back and write. So there was a lot of breaks in between. But when I came back, the Mali Almeida character seemed fascinating. And and his voice arrived in the second person. And that's when it really took off that I started, the pages started flowing. And But still, it was, as we've outlined, quite a, a complex book because it have all, had all these moving parts, all these instruments playing at different times. And finished it in 2020, or thought I'd finished it. And um, Indian publishers were quite enthusiastic because Chinaman you know, had, had quite a cult following there. So they were eager for the follow-up. I suspected that it was needed, needed some work because it seemed a bit confused. And But they seemed quite happy to take it and we published it just before the pandemic. But then we struggled to find publishers outside in the UK and the US, finding it yeah, confusing, difficult, and thought it would alienate a lot of readers. So that's when Natanya Jans from Sort of Books, who had, I'd had, you know, We'd, she'd been a very generous reader. She's Sri Lankan and her husband, Mark Ellingham, of sort, sort of books I met in Sri Lanka and we've been friends over the years. And then, yeah, we sat together. I mean, she took it on and said it needs significant work and we took it on to make it more accessible to a Western audience. But then we ended up, it was the pandemic. So, you know, it, it, the production or publication date just kept getting pushed. 2020 became 2021. And so 
we ended up just moving things around, rewriting bits. So it went through extensive edit after that. And it's a bit strange to be rewriting a book that you think you're done with. But I, I did appreciate how much it got better. I, I, I could, despite, yeah, initially, I mean, I write copy for a living. And yeah, I, every time the client comes back with changes, you die a little, but you deal with it. But then in this process, I, I did realize it got better and better and better. And yeah, obviously, it was time well spent because this is where we ended up with it. I found it very refreshing to read a book written in the second person. And I just wondered if you could sort of talk us through the thought process around that. It made it a very immersive experience for, for me as the reader. But why did you choose to write it like that? Well, I think both books, I've, I've started off trying to write it in the third person. And, and with this, it was obvious to write it in the first person. I just, it was again a technical, I had a lot of technical problems to solve with constructing the afterlife and the rules of the afterlife and also the question of what does a disembodied voice sound like i can't really describe this though i do i mean he has this sensation of having a body and he describes it but what what does it sound like and then i figured it it's perhaps the voice in your head that's the thing that survives your death what what is that voice is it is it your soul your conscience whatever it could be but the voice in your head and I realized the voice in my head is the second person. I don't know everyone else's heads, but that, that just seems to be my, yeah, it's like someone else telling me what I should have done or what I shouldn't have done. And it also like, and I think with all these experiments, when you start writing, I just noticed again, like with the first book, when I decided to tell it from a drunken uncle, sports writer character's point of view, it really flowed. And same thing I found here. And then, I mean, that's dissected also in the book, what the who the you is and is it Mali or is it another aspect of Mali? And I've noticed now we're doing the audio book and this is without prompting from me, the, the, the voice actor is, there's a slightly different voice for the narrative. The narrative is in one register, but when Mali speaks in character, there's a bit more of an accent to it. And I thought that's actually quite quite correct because it's not the person tell the the you telling the story is not quite Mali even though and yeah I don't want to give too much away but yeah all these reasons it just seemed logical and I think about the main proof is it the story flowed from that so that was the decision behind it and you're also wary that it could get get cloying I mean I've written short stories in the second person but to have a long novel that way but yeah it seems to have worked and people have responded to it completely looking at the book what was your favorite part in the book is there a moment is there a line is there something that when you think about it really stands out to you is there without giving too much away but to our audience but is there one moment that really just comes right back to you well I have to think about this this is what's your when you've been rewriting it so long it's hard to think of bits that because everything has gone through so much revision i would say the thing that and yeah i haven't read it since finishing it but the thing that i remember is the dead leopard and i don't i i don't want to give away too many spoilers but that guy appeared and yeah the decision to include talking animals in this mythology was also didn't i didn't come to it lightly but yeah the dead leopard appeared and grew in prominence and i believe Again, no spoilers, but could end up the hero of the book, in my opinion. So I remember I, I, that's surprising me. It's a character that you didn't really plan for that emerges and somehow becomes the voice. So those bits. But I also remember enjoying, 
I mean, I don't say enjoying writing because it's all hard work, but enjoying the bits where the love triangle, which is not talked about and which is, again, the soul of the book. Those characters, again, started behaving in their own way towards each other, something I didn't contrive too much. And that's that's always the gift when you're writing because you do you do a lot of plotting, especially with a complex book like this. But when elements uh, seem to act, act on their own and shape things, that's so I, I do remember those two bits. The other stuff, I mean, the, the political stuff and the, 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 the afterlife stuff, I just remember as being technical problems to solve. Okay, where can a ghost go? How can they communicate with the living? These were technical problems to solve. And so I, I see the hard work behind them. But I think these, these two elements seem to come organically. And so, yeah, that, that would be my favorite bits. You mentioned that a lot of the rewriting was because it needed to appeal more to a Western audience. What was that work like? How did you make the book more global? I read somewhere that the book and the magic realism genre, if you want to call it that, and which makes me think of Marquez and Colombia. But how did you make that those changes from what was seemed maybe not global enough? Well, firstly, I think the Sri Lankan political situation in 89 was quite complicated, right, as we've outlined earlier. And so I think you don't, you shouldn't have to be knowledgeable about Sri Lankan politics of the 80s to appreciate the book. And this is also a brief for my first book was, you don't have to be into cricket or understand or know anything about Sri Lanka to appreciate Chinaman. And that was the end. So I had little cheat notes in the first 50 pages that gets the reader on the, uh, gives them enough background. Same approach here. There's a chapter early on that sort of summarizes, it's almost a glossary, but it's not quite, I'm not a fan of glossaries in fiction, but it gives the, gives a cheat. So that, that was something that came, was enhanced. I think it was there in the previous version. So that was one thing to just make clear what, who the various factions were, but also the rules of the afterlife. I I, I guess things like rebirth and demons and, Mm -hmm hungry ghosts that we take it for granted here and i mean every culture has their ghost stories but i think just unraveling that mythology and so i think that was initially that's what we looked at but then we again looked at pacing and that so as as i say you have two years you keep tinkering with it so will a western reader now get completely confused and not proceed with the book should we make it easier for them and take this bit out and make sure? So that's, I think, the, the murder mystery and the political thriller plot. We we enhance that so there are genre cues which you can follow and, and pacing it. I mean, the Seven Moons is the classic ticking clock in any thriller. And that was, so I think things like that. But I also, you know, I'm a fan of genre fiction. And so I, I think I also agreed with, with these, with these shapes, you know, you want, you don't want it to be seen as a difficult book and that you need insider knowledge to appreciate it. So, so those were the changes initially, but over, over the months, we started looking at character and also political commentary that may not quite land or places where things were repeated. That was the lens is you can pick up this book and have no knowledge of Sri Lanka and still have enough to, to, to follow the plot and appreciate it and enjoy it, hopefully. I wanted to come back to the, you mentioned the love triangle and two of the main characters in that are obviously Marley and Didi. And so I wanted to ask you about Marley, like how much of yourself is in him as a character, if any at all? And actually, 
because you're a writer and so you're an observer of people and he's a photographer it's you sort of both of you have that sort of step back and that you're looking at the world through different lenses and whether you sort of relate to him on that level so I based I think like I said 89 I looked at unsolved murders and one very famous case was Richard de Soisa, who I think is the opening epigram to the book who was a who was a playwright activist journalist and also a closeted gay man and who was murdered in 1989 or 1990 and so that was the starting point and of course Mali evolved to become a war photographer and a gambler and so on and so I didn't really think of and neither with the first book I'm writing about a a drunkard like twice my age from a different generation different values so i i was sort of looking looking at the story through through this guy's eyes and i think if anything what what you see of me is the colombo guilt the 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 kind of the colombo bubble the the guilt of being middle class colombo during time when terrible things are happening around the island and I wasn't really affected. I mean, you grew up with this consciousness of, of forever war. So obviously there is some that, that seeps into you. But yeah, I wasn't really affected by it. And I, I knew that people were suffering. And of course, I didn't do too much about it apart from write a novel 30 years later. But Mali was, a so I guess, just like Pradeep Matthew in Chinaman was this, because I used to bowl left arm spin, but I wasn't very good at it. It was this fantasy version of the cricket I could become. I guess this were guy was this activist who actually went out into the war zones and did something about it and yeah used his creativity so his i mean i'm, I'm not a very good photographer i can barely take a selfie but i appreciate i'm surrounded by people who can and yeah um went in and observed and wanted to use their art to stop things i don't know if i'm quite that idealistic or quite that brave but certainly the colombo guilt thing was something that i really noticed in him and i thought yeah that's coming from from a real place and and yeah for, it's later when i found out interviewing people that I, I you don't appreciate the extent of things and maybe it's better not to how do you process these things as a 14 year old um but really mali like i've also been asked and i got this feedback during the draft that mali's not a very likable character uh, i don't know if i'd want to hang out with him i'd certainly want to hang out with wg from chinaman sounds like watch a cricket match drink some Eric. sounds like a fun guy this guy not so or even Didi. maybe jackie the third point of the triangle jackie i think perhaps but i and then i thought and i think it's not a problem i don't think characters need to be likable for you to follow them they just you just need to be rooting for them or understand their motivation but so I don't know. I don't know if there's much of me apart from being in the Colombo bubble in Mali. But yeah, I enjoyed writing about him. I was fascinated by him. I wanted to pick up on death. And I know you said this is a satire and there are some real elements to it that are, you know, quite horrific in, in nature, actually. Some of the scenes you describe and obviously, you know, you're talking about the atrocities of war and, and you you can't avoid that. At its heart, you know, this is a guy who's died. He's now in the afterlife, and we see the moment where his his friends and his mum find out that he has died, and he sees that, you know, from above. And it's it's just a really sort of interesting exploration of death, I think. And I feel, particularly coming from the UK, we tend to shy away from talking about death. Other countries, you know, Mexico in particular, they celebrate death. I just wonder what your take is on, you know, do you think it's something as a society we ought to be more comfortable 
being able to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure Sri Lankans are any more comfortable talking about it. But but you're talking about death in general, right? The fact that it's we all face it and we all avoid it. Anka, we're not, we don't talk about tragic death. That's why setting it in a police station, that's where where yeah, you, you meet his family and so on. And these two cops who you know are not going to solve the, the murder. For me, it was just figuring out what the afterlife could be like. I came up with this absurd conceit that it was disorganized. and But I think rather than death, it's, it's memory that is the theme of the book, how you look back on life. I think that's... And, how you look back on your past. And I think that's a theme for Sri Lanka, the idea of do you do you bury the past or do you do you dig it up? And it's the same for Mali. He's got two sort of voices in both his ears. One saying, just just leave it behind. There's nothing you can do. Move on towards the light. And another one saying, no, we need to right the wrongs of your past. And that's the only way things can change. And that debate is happening in Sri Lanka. And we tend to go with the the notion that, yeah, it's bygones, no point dredging up this stuff. And I think I'm sure that that criticism will be leveled at this novel once people have got over the excitement and have a chance to read it, is why are we talking about 83 and 89 when we have present crises? So I think that was more it. What do you hope people will take away from the from the novel? What's the main message you wanted to, or thought you wanted to leave them with? Well, I think in my speech, I said, I hope it gets filed under fantasy in the bookshop and um, doesn't get mistaken for political satire or reality or or statement on the current situation. Because I've been asked many those questions by people who perhaps haven't read the book, but see, okay, Sri Lanka's in crisis again. We've seen it in the news and are there parallels and, and so on. In the end, like, like I said, I just set out to write a ghost story and a murder mystery. And that's that's why you start off, tell, tell a good story. And I've used these elements, though my first book was just about cricket and Arak. And I consciously wanted to write a Sri Lankan book that didn't talk about these subjects. That Because, again, that was my Colombo bubble experience, that it was possible to live the 90s watching cricket when Sri Lanka won the World Cup in 96. There was a moment where the whole country just escaped into just watching the cricket team there's been many messages. They they come out later in, in, in the writing. But that, that was really my hope. But now that I've had time to think about it and, and answer lots of questions about it, I do think the idea of going back to our past is not a... And the idea of highlighting it doesn't make you a traitor or treasonous or unpatriotic. I think that's that's an act of love if you're if you're going back and criticizing your country and looking where things went so terribly wrong. So I, I suppose my hope is that that the, especially the young go back, because I don't know if these things are taught in school. We're taught about our, our ancient kings. We're talk, taught about our British and the Portuguese and the Dutch colonizers. But I don't know if we're taught about history of my lifetime, the last 20, 30, 40 years. And I would say that would be my hope, that this piques interest to go back and, and read about these things and, and understand them and then see parallels with... And there, there are no parallels at the moment apart from the crisis. I mean, today Sri Lanka is... Sri Lankans are suffering, but it's nothing compared to the terror and the horror of 89 and 83, and I hope we never, ever get there. But so I, I suppose that that would be my message, that there are lessons in Sri Lanka's past that maybe we haven't cared to listen to and that we should. 
I feel like living in different places and coming from different places, I, I really identify with that. I, I come from three different countries, but grew up in Asia my whole life. So books and literature have really helped me identify with my culture and reconnect with moments of history that I may not understand having lived abroad. So I think that's a really powerful way of, of looking at it. Last question for our audience. Who are some of your favorite authors? Who would you recommend? Who are you reading right now? Is there any book you go back to and reread? Yeah, so I mean, with this one, the three writers who I've also thanked in the acknowledgements were Kurt Vonnegut, George Saunders, and Douglas Adams. I just kept turning to them every time. I just kept them close at hand. <laughs> and Cormac, so I mean, you can see the common thread in those three. They're all talking about pretty grim subjects. You know, Kurt Vonnegut's talking about how humanity is destroying, civilization is destroying itself. Douglas Adams about the meaninglessness of life and man's insignificance in the universe. But they're all riots. They're all hilarious and great rides. Um, and Cormac McCarthy, not too many jokes there, but I've been, those were the, so that was for the violence. But I just say, uh, yeah, George Saunders, you know, wrote the talking ghost book that won the booker. And I thought, they're never going to give another talking ghost book a booker. And, and I got to meet the great man right after my South Bank show. He was at the South Bank and got to exchange some words and take a selfie. So, that, that was, so I've had my fanboy moment as well. But certainly Kurt Vonnegut is the one I keep returning to. It's um, I for Chinaman, the curmudgeonly drunk uncle tone, even though it's a sad story of a man drinking himself to death. So I lent heavily on Kurt. Um, but Uncle Kurt, I should say. With Sri Lankan writing, again, we've had a great heritage and Undachi um, Gunasekara um, and Karl Muller, who I keep talking about, who was not as celebrated as these two or Shyam Selvadure in the 90s. But when I allowed us, I felt, wrote how Sri Lankans spoke. And that was quite inspiring. I could never write as elegantly as Undachi or Gunasekara or Selvadure, but I could certainly write like Karl Muller. So these were like the formative influences and these were the immediate influences. At the moment I'm reading, so I was stuck on a train from Birmingham to London. It's supposed to take only one hour, but I was stuck for like eight hours. Luckily the kids weren't with us, just me and my wife. But it was, I was quite amazed at how patient the British were. In Sri Lanka, who knows, they might have set fire to the train. I don't know, but the people were very patient um, and uh, we got through it. But in that time I read uh, two of the, not I didn't finish, but two of the book are shortlists. Um, so I, uh, Percival Everett, The Trees, and Elizabeth Strout, O. William, I'm halfway through both. Two very, very different books. Um, I mean, I expected to like Percival Everett's The Trees. It seemed like my, down my street, did, was quite surprised by Elizabeth Strout, but they're both, both were gripping me. Um, so yeah, that's what I, I hope to make my way through the long list. Um, uh, well, because yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not just saying this, it wasn't the, Leading up to this, you know, I've been following all the booktubers and the book talkers because, um, you know, we couldn't get books to Sri Lanka. We have a petrol crisis. You've got to get petrol and gas before books. Uh, and just thinking these are books that I'd like to read and I want to find out more. So I think that's what I'm uh, I'm going to geek out on booker winners uh, for a while. Uh, and, but yeah, maybe less ghost stories and less cricket stories. I think I'm a bit done with that subject. That was Booker Prize winner, author Shehan Kawunatilaka, speaking to Kate Whiting and myself. Big thanks for joining us on the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast and best of all, leave us a review. 
Don't forget to join our book club on Facebook, which is coming up on 200,000 followers. And to discuss podcasts, please join the Facebook podcast club as well. And of course, please search out our sister podcasts, Radio Davos and Meet the Leader, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Book Club podcast was presented by my colleague Kate Whiting and myself, Beatrice DiCaro. Production was with Gareth Nolan, and big thanks to our podcast editor, Robin Pomeroy. We'll be back soon, but for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.